Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew's Gospel chapter 10. This is a new chapter, but it's a chapter that is, uh, it is a unit. And I'm titling this The War Room because Matthew 10 sort of opened up to me this week in a way that surprised me as to how it all was hanging together under the theme of Christ giving a, a mission statement for the 12 apostles. He's calling the 12 and he's commissioning them and sending them out on a mission. And it's a mission that is unique for them in terms of their gifting and calling, but is also brought into the same mission that we are a part of now. We are taking the baton from the apostles because the last living apostle was John, and then the church was born. And so as the church was born and was, was going, we are participants in this great mission. It's like we are, we're just continuing it on by extension and bringing it to full completion. You say, I, how am I a part of some apostolic mission? Well, I want to address that and want to make very clear that the apostles... Um, that age is over. The apostles were here for a unique and specific purpose to establish the authenticity of the church. And it was born under the, the Holy Spirit's coming at Pentecost and the apostolic witness of their preaching and the miracles being done and done. And it was extending and advancing the kingdom of Christ where Christ had come on earth, died, was buried, rose again and ascended to the right hand of the father. But with the authentication of Jesus through miracles, that, that same authenticating work was happening through the apostles. You say, well, that's amazing. That's amazing for them. But I want to show you that this chapter is a war room manual, like a war manual, as if we're in the Pentagon and we're representing the different branches of the military. We just had Veterans Day. We're... we're we're there receiving orders from the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of how we will execute the mission. There's really six points of a large sermon that I'll preach over six weeks or so out of Matthew 10, each having its own unit, each having its own section and emphasis in terms of pulling off this strategy. It's the calling of the 12. Point two will be verses 5 to 15, commissioning of the 12. Then verses 16 to 25, the cautioning of the 12, where many will be flogged, dragged out, delivered, hated, persecuted, and maligned. Then the comforting of the 12, verses 26 to 33. Then the challenging of the 12, verses 34 to 39. And the confirming of the 12, verses 40 to 42. All of this is... Christ's strategy that builds principles to, for us to keep on keeping on in the mission. Again, why am I being swept into the apostles' mission? This was their mission. Is this my mission? Well, last week we talked about joining Jesus' mission. And we have to understand that these apostles were imbued with great power and authority that's different than what we experience today. But we have the same message we have the same Holy Spirit and the same Word of God to do the work of the ministry. We have everything that we need in life and godliness according to the true knowledge of Jesus Christ. We have the sufficient Savior that is empowering us for this mission. 
lot of people will dress themselves up with false apostolic authority, even in churches in our community, and say, I'm the one that you need to look to for power and authority. But really, all of our authority is found in the Lord Jesus Christ through the word of God. But don't underestimate that authority at the same time. And don't count yourself out because you're an ordinary Joe or an ordinary um, woman, whatever name you would choose there. We're, we're, we're all ordinary people, just followers. We're those who are the clay vessels with you know, treasure inside earthenware. We have this word of God and this witness that we need to give out. I was uh, in my parents' church years and years ago after SEAL Team 6 went in to... Um, take out Osama bin Laden. We remember that. That's now um, years and years ago. But I remember I was in Virginia Beach, Virginia at my parents' church and I was visiting with an associate pastor and there was, you know, there was kind of glass, two-way glass that you could see out of his office area. And we're talking to each other and he looked over my shoulder and said, oh, there's two men from SEAL Team 6 that just walked by. Because it's the Virginia Beach, Norfolk area. They have SEAL training there. And we just kind of, you know, stood stunned for a second in awe of men who went in and, and accomplished that mission. And I didn't recognize them from anybody else because they were just dressed in plain church clothes, just walking around and kind of looked at them. They were just blending in. But when you know about what they did, you kind of stand a little bit in respect for that and honor for their sacrifice and bravery. Well, in a lot of ways, that's like Christians. We're, we're just regular people, regular clothes, regular life, regular circumstances, and yet we're part of a grand mission. Think about it. We're the ones, I mean, you have all these, you know, either athletes or statesmen or, or military men and women that we would revere and respect in unique ways, and we should. But think about it. We're the, we're the Anchorage disciples of the Lord Jesus who, who have the word of God. And we're the ones that Jesus is entrusting to the mission for it to continue and carry on. There was a uh, kind of a fabled story. It was in the MacArthur Commentary. And it's uh, where John was uh, quoting quiet talks on service by S.D. Gordon. And it gives an imaginary account after Jesus uh, returned to heaven after his ascension. It says, the angel Gabriel greets Jesus and asks, Master, you died for the world, did you not? Lord Jesus says, yes. You must have suffered much, the angel says. Again, Jesus says, yes. Do they all know that you died for them, Gabriel asks. And Jesus said, "Uh, no, only a few in Palestine know about it so far, Jesus says. Well, then what is your plan for telling the rest of the world that you shed your blood for them? Jesus responds, well, I asked Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, and a few others, if they would make it their business in their lives to tell others. And then the ones that they um, tell could tell others, and they in turn could tell still others. And finally, it would reach the farthest corner of the earth, and all would know the thrill and power of the gospel. But Gabriel says, suppose Peter fails. And suppose after a while, John just doesn't tell anyone. And if James and Andrew are ashamed or afraid, then what? Gabriel asks. Jesus says, I have no other plans. I am counting entirely on them. It's kind of an interesting story, but it really does kind of put the weight on our shoulders, right? Why are people hearing the word of God? Well, they're hearing the word of God by word of mouth ministries, which is just us talking about it, Bible studying about it. 
inviting people to hear it. And not for the sake of growing a church establishment as if it's a company, but growing the ministry and mission as we carry out the core principles that we will find here in this war manual. That's what this is. This is six sections of a war manual. You can frame up a big outline about it. I didn't even get through the first section this morning which was probably good because it would just burn everybody out. But we're going to look at the first section, which is the calling of the apostles, the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles. Who were these very ordinary men who by the power of the spirit were given the ability to do extraordinary things? William Barclay said it this way. Jesus chose these men not only for what they were, but also for what they were capable of becoming under his influence and his power. This is what Jesus had to work with. (laughs) These men who Jesus, here it is, chose to work with these ordinary men. And likewise, we are Jesus chosen soldiers who are ordinary men And women, and I would say believers who are boys and girls and teenagers, young to seniors, we are part of the Lord's army to complete this mission. Well, this takes us right to the calling. Let me just read verses 1 to 4. This is Jesus calling the 12 apostles. And he called to them his, and he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out. And to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter and Andrew his brother. James, the son of Zebedee and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Six sections of the war manual. This is the first section, the calling of the twelve. And these men were called by Christ. Now, if we were to look back at Matthew's account in chapter 4, where Jesus is walking on the seashore at the Sea of Galilee in the town of city of Capernaum, we know that he walks and comes across um, these first names that are listed. Peter and Andrew. You have Simon and Andrew, not yet been named Peter at that point. And then you have James and John. Jesus calls out to Simon and Andrew, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Verse 19 of chapter four, they dropped their nets and followed, but Jesus saw two more who were both fishermen, both brothers. You have the next two, James and John. He called to them, verse 21, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. They left Zebedee. They said, we're, we're going to leave our occupation to follow Jesus because God was calling them. There are unique kinds of calling, and this kind of calling is the, it's the general call for all believers, all unbelievers, anyone in the world to come to Jesus. That's the general call. Whosoever will, Jesus says, I will in no wise cast out. There are many who are called and few are chosen. The many is everyone, but there's few that are chosen. Revelation twenty two seventeen. the bride says, come, says, come, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires water have life without any price. Anyone in the world is called to salvation, but at the same time, there is also an irresistible call that is a divine summons where Jesus looks into um, Peter And Andrew, Simon and Andrew, James and John, and he's summoning their hearts to come to him. All that the Lord calls, he will draw to himself. John 6, 37, 
It says, the Father, all who the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. John 6, 44, no one can come unless the Father who sent me draws, that's the word drag, drags him and I will raise him up at the last day. Those are two kinds of calling, the general call and then the irresistible call, the divine summons, an invitation and a summons. And then now we have a a unique call here in verses 1 to 4. And this is the call that is an appointment. We talked about deacons, deaconess meetings. We talk about eldership here. There is an appointment to an office, a leadership office that the Lord can work in your life. There are callings to particular ministries where you say, I feel called. I sense an appointment of the Lord to serve in children's ministry or on missions work or wherever in youth ministry. I feel appointed to that. Like the Lord has directed me to that. For me to be an elder, I, I aspire for that. I desire that. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, it's a trustworthy statement. Anyone who aspires to the office of overseer and desires, that word desire, epithemia, it's a strong desire. I strongly desire a noble task. That's part of the calling. Calling is found where you have leadership in the church affirming your character to do a specific task. They're affirming your giftedness. They see it in the body of Christ where you really look like you would be able to do this particular thing. And then you got to want it. All three things, character, gifting, and desire are part of your calling that the Lord uses to put you in something. And once you're in it, it's like a cell phone. You can't live without it. You just want to do it. And and you're excited to serve the Lord in that way. It energizes you. Well, the apostolic qualifications were unique to themselves. We know that when Judas Iscariot fell out of ministry, literally apostatized and ended his own life. They needed to find someone. In Acts chapter 1, verse 21, it takes up this new establishment of a new apostle. They needed a 12th apostle, and they had looked at Joseph called Barsabbas, and they also looked at Matthias. The qualifications are as follows. Verse 1, so one of the men who accompanied us during all the time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. So someone who was with Jesus during the three years, beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness of the resurrection. That's that word martyria. They, you literally saw Jesus raised from the dead. I think that that is the key um, to um, apostolic office is seeing Jesus raised because when in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul is talking about his own apostolic qualifications. He didn't walk with Jesus physically like Matthias had, but as an apostle to the Gentiles, he needed to have seen Jesus risen from the dead. And we know that he had that heavenly vision on the Damascus road, saw the Lord in that unique way, was called directly by the Lord Jesus to apostleship. We know he was also caught up into the third heaven in visions that he couldn't speak of when he came back down here on earth. He was trained and then ultimately was affirmed by the other apostles. The 12 disciples, verse 1, that word disciple here, it means learner. Anyone that's saved is a disciple. Anyone that's a follower is a disciple. We're called to win people to become followers of Jesus. But here, the 12 disciples are now given a second title that is 12 apostles. So these are believers, but they are uniquely called apostles, the 12. Now, again, I want to just say the apostolic age is over. 
We do not have people walking around as living apostles today with a big A by their name. The word apostle means messenger, apostello, sent one, one who is an envoy for Christ. We're carrying out that tradition as disciples, but the apostles were here to establish the New Testament church, to extend the ministry of Jesus, a ministry that the world had never seen before with divine healing, demon-free zones, disease-free zones, miraculous moments. Moments where heaven came to earth. That's what the apostles are given power to, to show and display on the, in the name of Jesus to say the message was true and the church is real. And it was established, Ephesians 2.20, on the New Testament prophets and the apostles. That authority was theirs alone and that authority was carried out through their writings. And that's why we have scripture, specifically the New Testament scripture that many of them wrote and contributed to and testified for. They were prophesying and then prophecy was given to us in the canon of scripture. The last book of our Bibles, the book of Revelation, where it says, don't add or take away or you'll have diseases added and plagues added to you for saying that other things are scripture is given to us by the Apostle John, who was designated and exiled on the island of Patmos, seeing that glorious vision of the Lord Jesus and writing that vision down at the book of Revelation, which was closing the canon of Scripture for us. But within this closed canon, we we sense and we know by conviction of the Holy Spirit that we possess the authority of the Word of God. I have no authority within myself. I have no authority in the office of preacher or pastor or elder beyond whatever the word of God says. All the authority is here in the scripture. People who parade themselves as apostles to be able to tell people what to do and claim things and take power over, that's all wrong and falsehood. The word of God is our authority and rule. And we can learn from that. And we can take orders from the word of God and apply it as Jesus disciples. Well, here in the text, it says he called him to him, his 12 disciples and gave them authority. I think this was a unique moment for these apostles. They were already disciples. Like we had mentioned, we have um, Simon and Andrew, you have James and John. They were already followers, but now they're given this unique authority over unclean spirits, over ceremonial unclean demons, demons who devise tales and twist Scripture into doctrines of demons. They were given the ability to cast them out, excise them, exercising them, just like Jesus had done, to heal every disease and every affliction, every, every malady, giving heaven on earth in these moments, miracles to vindicate that the message is true, miracles that show that people could be saved by the gospel message from sin and eternal death and saved to heaven, saved from sin to heaven for eternal life. This is what Jesus gave as authority to these men. It's amazing. Judas Iscariot included, and we're not going to get to him this morning. However, All these men had these powers and all these men had this authority. Why? Because Jesus gave it to them. Jesus could do it. And Jesus says, God and the God man, second member of the Trinity, I believe was designated to do it. And in that designation, he's the only one who could do it. God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy Spirit, all God, one God, three persons. But this member of the Trinity was the one who was given this responsibility to give this to these 12 to start this mission a mission that we are still carrying out in anchorage alaska and around the world 
This is the authority of the the apostles. The apostles were proxies for Jesus. They could stop and redirect the demonic realm. They could stop a demon in his tracks. They could heal the masses. These were interventions in the world. You say, I'm not gifted as an apostle. Well, we've already covered that. But it is important for you to understand that with our twisted age, this world needs your witness right now. This world needs the word of God like never before. The reason I read the Proverbs is just to fly in the face of the insanity of our culture. But it's not just to take a political stand and say, yes, we have the truth and we're going to win that way. We can win. Um, We can win politically in ways and, and help our world through government, and I'm for that. But please do not underestimate the fact that you are, you're designated for this. You're appointed to be a Christian, to be a little Christ. That's what the word Christian means, to be a a little witness, to be a witness, which is the word martyr. And I'm not wishing death upon any of us, but we're to be that martyr witness out here for Jesus Christ with the word of God and to, to ring the bell and to say, let's center back on truth. Let's know Jesus together. This is our call. It is our duty. It is our mission. This section here is, is grouped together in um, four groupings. Let me read through the names. This is the roll call, by the way, of Jesus Christ. It's like the first section of the war manual, roll call time. Let's stand up and be accounted for, for the mission before us. Verse 2, the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip, and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. It's our roll call. It's what we're looking at. Mere men on a mission. It begins with the intimate three. You have Andrew that's included there because he's a blood brother, but you have Peter, James, and John, who were also um, two of whom were known as the... um, Pillars of the church, the James, the half-brother of Jesus, is the third pillar. But you have the intimate three who went in with uh, Jesus to, um, when Jesus healed Jairus' daughter, brought her back to life. You have the intimate three, Peter, James, and John, who went with Jesus up Mount Transfiguration and saw Jesus' um, unveiled glory in terms of his deity. You have the intimate three who went with Jesus a little bit deeper into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray with him in intimacy. You have def- different levels of ranking and friendship and, and dynamic, and it's always that way in our natural, normal experience to have closer people, people who are closer to you, who get you, who can, you can trust on deeper levels than others. But Jesus um, is is forming this group in that way. And you have Peter, James, and John. You have Andrew. And the groupings are about four of them, I think, if you want to break it down that way. Um, You know, Philip and Bartholomew and probably Andrew are part of a second group. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, are um, and, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, maybe the third group, and then Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, the fourth group. Uh, however you group them, you always have Peter first and Judas is last. Peter is first and Judas is last. You have some qualifiers here, like the tax collector, the zealot, the one who betrayed him. Uh, you have the word brother, his brother, his brother. All of these qualifiers give us a little insight into who these people are. We know more about some of them than others of them. We know less about 
certain ones, but they're all mere men. And this, these are people that I, in particular, want you to relate to. I want you to relate with these men. These, I want to humanize these people because they, though they were given great power, they're just like you and me. This is the roll call. First, Peter. Who is Peter? Well, Peter is um, named Simon, ultimately named, renamed by Jesus as the rock because of his great confession. Why is he listed first? Well, because his greatest strength, strength was his greatest weakness. He's first because he was a leader amongst leaders. Why was he a leader? Because he was willing to put himself out there. And sometimes, as I know from personal experience, it's really great to put yourself out there. I kind of, you know, make my living on the gospel by standing up to preach when I was really never a good spokesperson, never a good student, never a good reader. Um, I, I have a foot-shaped mouth. I mean, I am more and more like Peter the older I get and understand that that's really who I am. I'm a big mess. But um, just like you um, and, and me, our greatest strength can be our greatest weakness. You, you put yourself out there. You speak too soon. You don't listen. You know, you're, you're not slow to speak. That's Peter. And um, that's, that's who he was. And it's why the Lord used him in a lot of ways. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said, who, who do, you, who do these, these men call me this person or that? Who do you think I am? Peter's like, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. Jesus says, you're blessed. And then Peter tries to argue him out of going to the cross. Hey, I got to hinder you from that. You can't do that. Hey, get thee behind me, Satan. So you're blessed. Now you're the devil. Now you're the devil. And that's, uh, that's Peter's life. He spoke to the crowds when everyone left, all the masses. Simon Peter answered the Lord Jesus, said, you know, do you want to go with the, the group? And Jesus said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. John six sixty eight. Peter drew a sword, cut off Malchus's ear in the garden. Um, he drew it out, struck the priest, high priest's servant. In the right ear, trying to lop his head off, Jesus said, put your sword back into its place, Matthew 26, 52. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Trying to take matters into his own hands. Jesus, uh, Peter had said earlier, hey, I commit to you. I'm not going to deny Christ. I'm not going to deny you, even if it costs me my life. And, P- and Jesus says, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And he did that. He was close to Jesus during the arrest. He was close to Jesus during the trial. He was near to Jesus when he was beaten and scourged. But he had denied the Lord Jesus through all of this, all concomitantly at the same time. They locked on eye contact and Peter wept bitterly, the scripture says. Later, he was restored by Jesus on the beach. The resurrected Lord came. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Three affirmations to restore Peter to ministry. Where Peter is saying, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, you know I do. Getting Peter to recognize the omniscience of the Lord where Jesus could see right into his heart. Even though he was so sad that he had denied the Lord, he knew that he was forgiven and that he was called to the Lord. And Jesus said, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. And he went out and did that at Pentecost and preached and 3,000 were saved and the church was born. Simon had been renamed Peter as the rock. And as I mentioned before, Ephesians 2, um, 20 says that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus is the cornerstone. Peter would see the sheet lowered three times on Simon the Tanner's uh, roof at Joppa. And 
and it was unclean animals, and it was breaking the paradigms of Peter's mind saying, oh, I got to be a, a person who's religious and a rule keeper. No, kill and eat, kill and eat, kill and eat. Okay, I get it. I'm supposed to evangelize Gentiles. I need to get out of my comfort zone. So he goes to Cornelius' house. Cornelius, who was a God-fearer, was prepared and pre-cooked to believe, believed Holy Spirit came upon his life. And that really changed Peter's life, but not so much so that when he went and visited the church at Antioch, which was exploding with Gentile believers, what did he do? He separated himself from table fellowship with them, said, I can't eat with you. I'm going to be over here. I'm going to separate myself. How would that work in our culture today, right? Here, here's Peter doing that. And Paul says, you're going to split the church. Galatians chapter 2, 11, when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Did Peter repent? Well, he wrote First Peter about being humble, humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God. He talked about young men humbling themselves to elders. He said, I am one of the elders of the church that I'm writing to from First Peter chapter 5. He was humble in that way. And then in Second Peter chapter 3 verse 15, he talks about Paul, who's a beloved brother. So they were restored. And he says in verse 16, there's things that he writes that are hard to understand. So he's giving him credit, giving him praise. That's Peter. All right, second, Andrew. Andrew, who is this? We don't know a lot about Andrew, verse 2. He's, uh, or verse 1, he's put in the first um, grouping, here at least. But the reason for that is because he's a blood brother, brother to Peter. Probably Peter's younger brother, as it's listed here. Physical and spiritual brothers are um, powerful testimonies a friend sticks closer than a brother i have a brother who's a physical brother who's a fellow preacher preached a sermon this morning i'm sure and we're close and we sort of live life in our own hearts with each other and uh that's that's an amazing blessing peter and andrew they saw jesus they both together dropped their nets and followed jesus then you have another named james the son of zebedee James, the son of Zebedee, remember James and John, they dropped their nets. This is that James. This is that James who was raised by a fisherman and as a commercial fisherman. We understand that industry here. It was a lucrative, powerful ministry then and there in the city of Capernaum in Galilee. This is... uh, This is that James. It's not to be confused with James, the half-brother of Jesus. There's a few Jameses in the New Testament. You have James, the son of Alphaeus, we're going to learn of. But James, the half-brother of Jesus, old camel knees, was known for prayer. He was the one who authored the book of James. And he was um, converted after seeing the Lord Jesus raised from death in 1 Corinthians 15. This is that James, uh, the half-brother of Jesus, who became the third pillar of the church with Peter and John. But then you also have James, the son of Alphaeus. We'll talk about him. But who is this James? This James is the one who uh, probably was the older brother of John, and he was the first apostle to be martyred. The first apostle. Stephen had been martyred, but he's the first apostle under Herod Agrippa. Acts chapter 12, verse 1. Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. So early, early death. Um, Who's John? Well, John was the one and brother to James. He was uh, the one Jesus loved. There was an intimacy there. John, who wrote the Gospel of John, he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and Revelation. Wrote a lot of our New Testament. He was loved by Jesus and entitled himself under being the one that was loved by Jesus. Autobiographically saying that. And 
referencing him leaning across Jesus' chest at Passover. Great responsibility was given to Jesus. Remember, Jesus went to the cross, and you have John and Mary there at the foot of the cross. And Jesus says to John, behold your mother, and to Mary, behold your son. So hands off that responsibility there. John is known to have served in the church at Ephesus, where Timothy would pastor, having that great commission from Paul. And you get that sense of how difficult that ministry would have been. But then John is later exiled to the island of Patmos so that he could see the exalted Alpha and Omega Christ in that great vision and convey that and write that and write of last things for us to learn. James and John, they were the son of Bonerges, uh, which Mark chapter 3 verse 17 says, which is translated sons of what? Thunder. Why? I, I mean, we have one window into this. We don't know if Zebedee was aggressive and passed that down or his mother. But uh, Luke 9, 51 through 56 talks about how they were with Jesus. Um, the days were drawing near for Jesus to go to the cross. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. They sent messengers ahead. They entered the village of the Samaritans. They're on the way to Jerusalem to make preparations. The people did not receive him. They didn't like the fact that the disciples were coming to just use them as a pass-through to go to Jerusalem. Typically, Jews would go around um, the Samaritans because they were you know, having that ethnic problem with them. And um, saying, you know, religiously, you guys are syncretistic and we don't want to be around you. But instead, the, Jesus says, let's go right through Samaria. Let's, let's connect with them. Let's, let's get resourced by them. They didn't want to do it. That made uh, James and John, two blood brothers, pretty mad. It says uh, when the disciples, James and John, saw it, verse 54, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? It's a great response. Talk about a fiery response, angry response, not good. Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. I think a lot of times, and I'll just like get you know from preaching to meddling, a lot of times people rationalize anger and angry habits and angry attitudes in Anchorage. Let's just sit on that for a minute. It gets cold. People get mean in the parking lot. It's easy to like get stuck in the snow. I mean, right? There's a lot of temptation to anger. Remember, Jesus rebuked them. And the whole point is to love people and to be around people, people who are different than you are, ethnically different, and it doesn't matter. You just give the gospel. You love people, and that's how we need to be. I didn't mean to say all that, but I guess I did. All right, so then you get to the aggressive mother moment, Matthew 20, 20 to 23, the mother of the sons of Zebedee. This is James and John's mother came up to Jesus with her sons, kneeling down before him. I mean, here it is, all this like pretentiousness. Oh, Lord. And Jesus said, what do you want? She said, say that these two sons of mine are to sit at your right hand and your left in your kingdom. It'll be beautiful. That's my own little adaptation. Jesus answered, do you know what you are asking? Are you able to drink the cup that that um, I am able to drink. They said to him, we are able. The sons are chiming in. We want it. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. John got over this. At the end of his ministry as the aged apostle, he was writing the um, churches in Asia Minor, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And he said, you know, I have overcome the world. All of this desire for worldly affirmation as, as like a fellow king and heir with Christ was dead. And he's saying, I've overcome the world. 
he was able to nurture leaders and, and disciple people who would ultimately raise up Polycarp and Ignatius and leave all this text for us. Let's look for the next, the next apostle, Philip. Philip is next on the roll call. This is verse 3. And you have, uh, like Philip and Andrew, Philip, is, his home is Bethesda, Bethsaida, I should say, northern Galilee. Again, fishing town, John 144. Um, all were fishermen, I believe. They were all around the ministry of John the Baptist, John 6, 5 through 7, 12, 21 and 22, 14, 8 through 14. But then they convert to follow Jesus. Philip's the one who led Nathaniel to Jesus. And Nathaniel, as we're going to learn, is, uh, is listed here as Bartholomew. But his kind of common name, you know, just like you have different ones that, you know, this is my name on my birth certificate, but I'm Nathaniel. That's Bartholomew. And uh, Philip's the one that led him to Christ. They were probably friends before knowing Jesus. And and Philip is appearing as first in this second grouping of the four groupings. And so that probably means Philip was a leader. Polycrates said Philip ministered in the Roman province of Asia. He was buried in the Hierapolis, the Greek area. And um, next we have the one he led to Christ, Bartholomew, which is Nathaniel, which is Nathaniel. It's a short account in John 1, 43 through 51 that talks about Nathanael coming to Christ. He's from Canaan or Cana where you have the first miracle of the Lord Jesus. And you learn, um, read with me at verse 43 of John 1. It says, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. And Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. See, they're all from this area. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Again, just pause there for a second. This is just normal Christianity. You've got to get out of your comfort zone a bit and say, look, I know Jesus. I can teach you the Bible. I can sit down and have a Bible study with you. I found Jesus. That's all that is going on here. It's all Philip is doing for his friend Nathaniel. Just showing up to Bartholomew. Hey, this is Jesus. This is how it works. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. It's amazing. We can stop there. I mean, you have Philip who led Nathanael to Christ. All he did, verse 46, was say, Philip was saying, come and see, come and see. And then you have another one named Thomas. Thomas, next in the list in, in um, verse three. Thomas is known as what? Doubting Thomas, right? His name is also Didymus, John eleven sixteen twenty one two. 21, 2. Aramaic, it means twin. We don't know if he had a twin, um, he appears in the narratives of John 11, 14, and 20. But I want you just to see that not only is Thomas a doubter, and we give him a bad rap, but we're just like him, right? But he also was courageous. John eleven sixteen. Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. That's Thomas. He's going for it. He's kind of like Peter. I'm going to go for it, but then I'm going to doubt sometimes. John 20, 26, eight days later, this is up in the upper room. Jesus has already been risen. He's making a second appearance. His disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with 
them, although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger in here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Now you can say Jesus is scolding Thomas here because he doubted, you know, put your hand in my wounds. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas was already a believer. Listen, Let's reestablish and affirm your faith. Let's pick you up off the ground and be a stronger believer. What did Thomas say? He said, my Lord and my God. That was his answer. Thomas answered him, my Lord, my God. Now, again, there's exhortation to believe without having to do that. But don't miss the confession. It's bold. My Lord and my God, you need a place in scripture to go that defends the deity of Jesus Christ. When somebody comes to your door and knocks on the door, rings your doorbell, they don't do that anymore, right? But if that scenario were to happen, then uh, you say, look, I can take you right to a text where scripture immediately and emphatically says Jesus is God. Thomas believed that. We believe that. He ultimately was known and chronicled for being a missionary to India Let's go to Matthew, the tax collector. We're not really going to unpack Matthew anymore. We did that a couple weeks ago. Matthew chapter 9 talks about him being saved and leaving his kind of mafia-like existence where he's like a mob boss bilking the system, a tax gatherer who's been traitorous to the Jews and working for Rome, and he's on the take. And he repents of all of that. He invites all of his fellow tax gatherers to come to his house and sit with Jesus and have a Bible study with him. Why does he put tax collector next next to his name? That's the question that a couple men brought up to me earlier this week. Why would you want to do that? Well, there's a fine line between true humility and false humility. And this is true humility. False humility, oh, you know, I'm this terrible person. I've got to bring up all my dirty laundry to make you feel sorry for myself, for me, and then I'm a believer. That's false humility. True humility is saying, I don't ever want to forget from whence I came. I know what I did. I know who I am. I know Jesus is my Lord. This is what he saved me out of. I'm not ashamed of the label. I was a tax collector. But I've repented of that love of money. I'm the Lord's now. That's what he's doing here. He's saying, just like Paul did in 1 Timothy 1.15, Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. I am foremost. That's what Paul was saying. Just like Paul, Matthew knew he was saved, but he wanted to point that out. And there's another reason he does, and I'll get to that in a minute. But verse 3 goes on. James, the son of Alphaeus. Who is this? Who's James, the son of Alphaeus? Well, James, the son of Alphaeus, we don't know a lot about him, but we can tie together another brother connection because Matthew, who's also Levi, that's his kind of common name is Levi in the Gospels in Mark chapter 2, 14. Levi is the son of Alphaeus also. So that makes James the son son of Alphaeus also Matthew's brother. They're brothers in the Lord, in the mission, Different from James, the son of Zebedee, different than James, the half-brother of Jesus, but a brother to Matthew also. James the younger, he's called, or James the less in Mark fifteen forty, He's probably the younger brother of Matthew. His mother's name was Mary, Matthew twenty seven fifty six. 56, one of the Marys that was with Jesus. 
Now we go on to Thaddeus. Who is Thaddeus? Well, Thaddeus, that name means nursing infant. It's a, a childish name. Perhaps he was the baby of the family. We don't know. But the real claim to fame to Thaddeus, Thaddeus is Judas who's not Iscariot. It's Judas, big parentheses moment, everybody, not Iscariot. Does everybody get that? I'm this name, but I'm not that person. That's who Thaddeus is. Thaddeus, he is... Um, the one who said this to Jesus, John fourteen twenty one. whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by the father and be loved by him and manifest to him. Judas, here it is, verse 22, not Iscariot said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? You say, that's a, a weird question. No, it's not. Judas is going, or Thaddeus is going, I believe, and my fellow kinsmen are witnesses, you know, they're, they're under your teaching. And are you going to extend your teaching out to the world? Is everyone going to get to see your witness and hear from you? And Jesus says, well, let me take it a level deeper. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, if your blinders are still on, you're not going to believe. But if, you're, if they're taken off, you'll believe. This is how he says it. Jesus answered in verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and will come to him, anyone, and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. The whole point is, just like Wi-Fi, you're either connected or you're disconnected, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. That's how he answers him. He's talking to a friend of mine in the lower 48 who was trenching in his backyard. He hit a cord. He says, every time I trench, I always hit a cord. As soon as he hit the cord from the, the, you know, half acre away, the house, the wife's calling out, the Wi-Fi is down. Oh, no. You know, we're all connected. Well, in the same way, we're either connected to the Lord or we're disconnected. And that's what Thaddeus was used to bring out. You'll either hear from Jesus, you'll either hear the truth or you'll reject it. The unbeliever and um, philosopher Henry David Thoreau said it takes two people to speak the truth, one who says it and one who receives it. Kind of an interesting brain teaser there. You have to be, for truth to be passed on, you have to have ears to hear, eyes to see that this is true. Let's look at the last person that we're going to look at this morning, and that is Simon the Zealot. He was a zealot, and again, he wasn't still a zealot because he was the Lord's now, but a zealot was a nationalist, was a patriot, was someone who would be a quiet assassin who would go up behind Roman dignitaries and stab them to death. And the whole reason I bring this up, I mean, it was a fourth party of the Jews. You have Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes. He was, he was in this zealot crowd. The zealots were the principal cause of the Jewish war, and they would say, you know, it's for God or for Yahweh and for country that I do everything. Yahweh is the ruler and Lord. Barclay said this, and I love this, because you have Matthew, who's the tax collector. He's the defector of the Jews. He's the one who was serving Rome. As a Jew, this is what Barclay said. If Simon the Zealot had met Matthew anywhere else in the company, except in the company of Jesus, Simon the Zealot would have stuck a dagger in him. Look, if you know Jesus, you can be friends with other people that know Jesus, no matter where they come from or what they've done. Barclay said men who hate each other can love each other if they both love Jesus. That leaves us with Judas Iscariot. I'm going to leave that for next week. Why did Jesus choose Judas? What's going on? 
didn't even know. Did Jesus know who he was picking to be part of the 12 apostles? And why does this matter? Well, there's a lot there and I had prepared for it, but oh well, we'll get to it next time.